Hello, welcome to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. I'm the author of the fantasy novel, Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, which I will read in its entirety, one or two chapters per episode on this podcast. This episode will cover chapters 35 and 36, where our final battle begins, and then where we learn of Marzell's fate. If you're joining us for the first time, you'll want to go back to episode one and listen in order. We're almost at the end of the story. We'll be here waiting for you when you're caught up, and I'm so grateful that you've joined us on this journey. If you'd like to read ahead and support my creative endeavors, please consider buying Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair as an ebook, paperback, or hardcover wherever books are sold. Or you can grab the ebook on Kindle Unlimited if you're a subscriber there. Signed copies of the book are available on my website, ryanhoytauthor.com where you can also find other books and stories that I've written. I'm excited to announce that the sequel novel to this, The Forest of Despair, is coming this July. Please visit my website, ryanhoytauthor.com, to find out how you can pre-order The Isle of Abandonment, book two of the Epistel Chronicles, if you're interested. Let's get into this episode and read chapters 35 and 36 of Gemma Calvertson and The Forest of Despair. Stay tuned after the chapters for a behind-the-scenes look, and thank you so much for listening. Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair, Book 1 of the Epistel Chronicles, by Ryan Hoyt. Chapter 35 Full defensive lockdown! There were about a dozen trained guards who protected the king, as well as double that number of footmen, butlers, advisors, and laborers, who resided within the walls of the castle. They all were provided with armor from days past, back when there was a full army stationed in and around the castle in the event of a foreign invasion. King Harold also had Captain Malik outfit Richard, Arnhem, Denny, Gemma, and even the king himself in that old armor. The swords and shields that were passed around had rusted in the damp, unattended armory, but they would have to do if only to help the makeshift soldiers look more imposing and less like a bunch of broken and frail old men and women in a defenseless castle. Gemma didn't feel broken and frail, nor rusted and makeshift. She delighted in knowing that she was taking a stand for something she believed in. She wondered if this was how her father had felt when he had marched north with his unit a quarter century ago and arrived at the castle of the Ancient Ones, not far down the river from where Gemma now found herself. It also helped that King Harold had sent out some men to gather the belongings the travelers hid in the bushes near the river, so Gemma was reunited with her bow and machete, and the rest of the companions had their familiar weapons as well. Gemma and three of the guards, who were also archers, stood on the rampart above the river gates as the black ships approached the docks. They would split up to cover the main gate if needed, but Gemma prayed it would not come to that. There were four ships, each with what looked to be around 30 people on board, not counting the unseen rowers below deck. About two-thirds of the visible occupants on each ship were soldiers from the Epistel Royal Army, carrying the banners of King Davin. Each ship carried long, bulky objects Gemma couldn't identify, covered in large tarpaulins. She assumed they were supplies for the troops. So it's true, she thought. Richard understood the prophecies after all. 
It really is King Davin who's partnering with the foreign ones to take control of our people. Behind her, King Harold and four of his guards climbed the steps to the platform overlooking the docks. They watched as an elaborately dressed Sakabayan man descended a ramp from one of the ships onto the dock, followed by one of the soldiers. As Gemma squinted to see the man who was in league with the Sakabaya, she realized who it was. Sir Marin Alamon, secretary of the Royal Mystic Committee. Alamon turned his attention to the people on the wall, taking each of them in with a glare, and then stopped on Gemma. They had never officially met, though Gemma had seen him around the Capital University Press office when he visited with Hannon. She assumed that Walker must have pointed her out to Alamon when they had set up her assignment to ensnare Richard the Elusive. Now it was clear that he recognized her. After giving her a knowing stare, Alamon continued to study the others on the wall. He's looking for Walker, she thought. He'll realize Walker failed his mission to arrest Richard before he could make it here. Harold, Alamon yelled up. It is time to surrender. On the authority of King Davin of Epistel, I hereby pronounce you an enemy of the people. These lands that were once your kingdom have fallen into neglect under your shameful rule. The five other kings of Epistel bowed to King Davin and ceded their powers, and you must do the same now. The northern kingdom of Emerson will henceforth be rightfully governed by Celadon Ni Alwyn of the Foreign Lands, who has been overseeing your kingdom for many decades due to your incompetence. Additionally, you are harboring a criminal, Richard the Elusive, who has committed murder in the town of Pinedrop and who has violated King Davin's laws regarding the study and practice of magic and religious arts. You will hand over the traitor and his companions, and you will give up your castle without incident, and his majesty may spare you from a painful and drawn-out execution. King Harold stood taller and straighter than Gemma would have thought possible. Either he was not intimidated by the army below, or he did a good job of hiding it. He started to clear his throat, but choked and fell into a coughing spell. Finally, he regained his breath. You must be Davin's lackey, he yelled back down. Well, hear me now. I have made grievous errors in my time as king of the Northern Keep. I grant you that. But let it be known that it is Davin who is the real enemy of the people. It is Davin who will bring about the downfall of humanity, along with those repulsive creatures from the foreign lands. I will not give up my kingdom again and I vow to win back the freedom of my people from the clutches of the Sakabayan invaders. As King Harold spoke, most of Alamon's soldiers and the foreign ones descended the ramps of the boats and crowded onto both docks. On the wall, the lead archer motioned for Gemma and the other two archers to knock their arrows. They took aim at Alamon and those who flanked him, presumably the highest-ranking Sakabaya present, as well as Alamon's two top lieutenants. Have your guards stand down, Harold, Alamon called up calmly. We'd hate to start killing when that can be prevented. You just have to come down here and surrender yourself. Simple as that. Well, you and Richard the Elusive. Where is that old boy, anyway? Gemma swallowed nervously. She turned back to see Richard climb the stairs and stop next to Harold. Like the old king, Richard stood tall and imposing, looking much more like she imagined he had on the great journey in his younger days. Your fall will hurt the most, Richard, 
Alamon yelled. We will find a way to spin it so people aren't too crushed to see the decline of one of their longtime heroes. Richard stood in silence. Suddenly, Arnim darted up the stairs and took his place next to him. You'll have to do the same to me, Sir Alamon, Arnim called out. I'm in this with my old friend. Go ahead and try to explain to the people of Epistel how I, too, was some evil threat to their safety. I think your story will start to unravel quickly. And who are you again? Alamon taunted. Ah, yes, the fat one. I remember now. You can be sure your family will also suffer for your unlawful resistance, Mr. Winstone. I seem to recall you have a wife and two daughters. This is your last chance to spare them. Surrender yourself now. Both sides stood in silence. Gemma and her fellow archers waited for the order to fire their arrows, but it did not come. Then the Sakabayan man next to Alamon raised his right arm, lifted his pointer finger, and flicked his wrist toward the castle. Gemma watched in shock as the Sakabayan soldiers on each of the four boats tore away the tarpaulins to reveal large, barrel-shaped iron contraptions that appeared to have open ends pointed toward the castle walls. The soldiers grabbed burning torches and lit some kind of fuse on each contraption before stepping back. A moment later, deafening, booming sounds rang out. Gemma thought she noticed brief flashes of light from each of the contraptions, but she didn't have time to think about it. In a fraction of a second, something came crashing through the castle walls in four different places. Shrapnel flew up, but not before Gemma was able to fire off an arrow. She hadn't waited for the order to come, but she didn't care. The head archer, standing a mere three feet to Gemma's right, was knocked down by a hail of debris from the explosions. As Gemma dove down, she caught a quick glimpse of Alamon's nearest lieutenant, who had taken the arrow to the chest. Once she hit the ground, Gemma looked over toward Richard, Arnhem, and King Harold. They had dropped down for cover, about 15 feet to Gemma's left. What kind of dark magic are they using? Arnhem cried out, his arms folded over the back of his head for protection. The foreign ones call them cannons, one of the surviving archers yelled. Even our castle walls are no match for them. Gemma lifted her head, just enough to peek over the walls. She noticed that the Sakabayan soldiers were stuffing something heavy into the openings of the cannons. She reached for another arrow and knocked it, but by the time she aimed, all four cannons were loaded and lit again. She dove back to the ground and covered her head as another loud boom rang out and another few sections of the castle's fortifications were blown to bits. They've blasted through the gate this time, Richard yelled. They'll storm the courtyard now. Denny, Arnhem yelled. He shot to his feet and turned toward the stairs that led down to the courtyard. Two of King Harold's guards followed Arnhem partway down, intent on stopping any enemies from making their way up to the king. Gemma turned to the two remaining archers on the wall with her and waved for their attention. You two, aim for the Sakabaya that are firing those things. You can do this. Gemma turned and ran to the interior ledge. She watched as Arnhem rushed down the stairs. When he was only a few steps from the ground, the Epistel soldiers began to pour in through the destroyed gate. One of them saw Arnhem heading down the stairs and turned toward him. He probably thinks he'll be rewarded for capturing one of the traitors of the Great Journey, Gemma thought. She pulled back her bowstring and fired off an arrow. It hit its mark, and the soldier fell to the ground. Arnim shot a quick glance up and nodded to Gemma. 
then continued running toward where he had last left Denny and a few of the makeshift castle guards. Gemma turned to see Richard leading old King Harold to the nearest tower entrance. Then she checked on the two archers. A satisfied look on each of their faces told her what she needed to know, and they were reaching for additional arrows. She confirmed that two of the creatures on the ships below had fallen next to their death devices. That left two more. She knocked another arrow and fired at the same target as one of the other archers. Hers was the one that connected with the rough-skinned being who was loading another round into the cannon. The final cannon was already loaded and turning toward their section of the wall. Its operator evaded an arrow that sailed several feet over his head and splashed into the water. Gemma fired another arrow at him and missed as well. The wind was suddenly picking up over the river, making it more difficult to aim. The Sakabayan soldier reached for his torch, brought it up to the cannon, and lit the fuse. Run! Gemma called out to the other archers. She turned to her left and ran in the same direction as Richard and King Harold. But after only a few steps, she heard the foreboding boom of the cannon, quickly followed by the explosion of masonry from where she had just been standing. As she fell to the ground, she caught a glimpse of both archers getting pulverized by the pieces of bricks that flew up from the impact. One tumbled off the inner edge of the wall and into the courtyard below, while the other lay still, covered by a pile of debris. Gemma, come on, Richard yelled from across the wall. She thought about sprinting in his direction, then realized she needed to finish her mission to take out the last cannon operator. She reached for the bow on the ground next to her, pulled another arrow from her quiver, knocked it, took a deep breath, and rose to her feet. She took aim at the Sakabayan as he finished reloading the cannon and shifting it in her direction. She took note of the wind and compensated in her aim. Gemma pulled back the bowstring and let go. The arrow flew down over the pathway below where the soldiers continued to climb through the opening at the gate and over the dock where Alamon, his surviving guard, and the lead Sakabayan stood. It continued over the deck of the ship toward the last cannon. It sailed inches from the cannon operator's head and made contact with a torch just behind him. The flame went out as the tip of the torch cracked right off. Gemma reached back to grab another arrow, intent on stopping the creature before he could relight the torch and ignite the cannon's fuse. Her hand made contact with an empty quiver instead. The surplus arrows are over in a bucket, she realized. She had taken only enough to get off a few shots before refilling, just as the other archers had been commanded to do. She looked over toward where she'd been standing, but the arrows were nowhere to be seen. In the meantime, the Sakabayan soldier on the boat had darted several feet away to fetch another torch. He grabbed it and turned. He neared the cannon. He held the torch out, moving it toward the fuse. He was ten feet away. When the fire connected with the fuse, it would send another blast toward the wall, toward Gemma, killing her. In the space of a moment, her own great journey flashed through her mind. The train ride, the market at Pine Drop, meeting Richard the Elusive, the Dark Storm, the vagrant who had attempted to kill Richard and take Gemma, the tunnel, the Black Forest, Walker, Ferrothon, the monster, the witch, the Nazike, the Ogressi, the river, the sewer, the dungeon, the disgraced king, and now, this. Gemma had started her journey as a scared and inexperienced historian setting out on her first big assignment, and now it appeared that she would end it as a proud warrior. The Sakabayan's torch was now mere inches from the cannon's fuse. At the rear of the black boat that faced the river, 
something caught Gemma's eye. A massive creature climbed up out of the water. Dripping, it reached for the cannon operator. The Sakabayan turned his head just quick enough to catch a brief glimpse of the thing that stood next to him. And then the new arrival reached out her gigantic hands, laid one on the Sakabayan's shoulders and the other around the back of his head. She separated his head from his body and tossed it overboard. The last Ogressi had arrived to help Gemma. Gemma turned back to the slaughter in the courtyard below as Epistel and Sakabayan soldiers alike struck down untrained and defenseless men and women. She didn't know if Denny and Arnhem had found each other, if they had found a place to hide or a way to escape. She turned toward the boats again to see what the Ogressi would do next. Alamon ordered the soldiers who had not yet made it through the wall to attack the giant who stood on the black ship. Alamon and the Sakabayan leader stepped aside to allow the soldiers to pass. As they ran down the dock toward the ramp at the end, the dock itself suddenly exploded from below. The soldiers flew up into the air in a hail of splintered wood and landed in the water. Gemma looked farther up the river and caught sight of several smaller vessels rowing toward the castle. An old woman stood at the front of one of the boats. Her arms were outstretched, her palms facing up. The glowing light in her hand extinguished in a final wisp of colored smoke. Nalia Lunara, the witch of Farathon, was approaching along with dozens of children adorned in shining golden armor that appeared to have been crafted specifically to fit their small bodies. Suddenly, things didn't look quite as dreadful. Chapter 36 Marzell's slumber was lengthy, but not at all peaceful. Metaphors for failure cycled through his dark dreams, penance for his sins. Each cycle ended with scenes of his peers dying, daggers piercing through the necks of Bertram, Horace, Shanisa, and the others. Each ended with Marzell falling, catching a split-second glimpse of Mrs. Calvertson pointing out Marzell to King Davin up in the castle. That man is the one who warned me, she might have said, or... He is the traitor to his people, or he knows what happened to my Gemma, please spare him for now. Between each dream, Marzell struggled to climb out of the blackness of his mind. There was a strong pain in his head that pushed him back down. There was a regret that held him there. The Lord Selenderon misled me, Marzell thought. He has forsaken me. He brought me to the mother of the Inquisitive One, told me to warn her, and yet that seems to have been our downfall. They were ready for us. They stopped us. Now I am all that is left of the Order of Selenderon, and apparently only to die in some torturous manner. And so, when the fog of unconsciousness finally began to dissipate, Marzell was unsure whether he was actually still dreaming. When his eyes opened, he was staring at water. Waves were crashing against wood twenty feet below him. The pain in his head was stronger than ever. His mouth was completely parched. His lips felt as if they had dried up and cracked off in flakes, leaving raw flesh exposed. His clothes were soiled, and only partially with his own fluids. The roughness of rope had cut its way through his cheeks, his forehead, his arms, his legs. Yet he continued to lie there in a daze for several more minutes, waiting for some other dismal scene to play out, another reenactment of his friend's deaths. Their deaths did not come, though. 
and that was when he knew that he must be back in the land of the living. It took all of his strength to simply lift his head. Pain shot down his neck and through his spine. He groaned loudly, and more pain came, this time from his dried-out throat. He lifted his head again and turned it to look around. Marzell of South Plains was hanging in a net off the side of a ship, dangling high above the water. Neither his hands nor his feet were bound, but he was a prisoner nonetheless. As he struggled to move his body, the net began to swing. Looking back down, he could see the waves growing larger, lifting and dropping the ship violently. The net swung out, then slammed back into the ship's side. His arms were so numb, his hands so blue from lack of blood flow, that he hardly felt it when his limbs were crushed against the ship. Still, he took as deep a breath as he was able and called out. Help! He attempted over and over again to be heard. He couldn't turn far enough to look up at the deck, so he didn't know if he was being watched. Please, help me up from here! Cruel laughter sounded from somewhere above him. He heard some shouting, but couldn't make out what was being said. It was then that the dehydration really hit him, and he could yell no more. Just as he started to drift back into an unwanted sleep, he felt an upward jolt. He was being lifted. The net was brought up onto the deck. He saw only boots as he was dropped face down on the solid surface. Someone grabbed the net and flipped it over. Marzell looked up to see a mix of men dressed in Royal Navy uniforms and men in white and gold King's Guard attire. They all looked at him with a blend of hatred and scorn, as if he were a rabid dog and they were ready to kick to death in a dank alley in Capital City. You must be thirsty, one of the guards said before he cleared his throat loudly and spat a wad of phlegm down onto Marzell. All of the men followed suit. Marzell couldn't move. He couldn't do anything but take it. This is what you want from me, Lord Solenderon, he thought. Marzell didn't know if he was crying. He certainly felt liquid dripping down his face, but he didn't think it was his own. Back off, boys, a voice called. The faces of Marzell's tormentors grew worried. They opened up their circle and faced the speaker, standing straighter as if at attention. Goodness, this man disgusts me. Private Alwood, clean him up for me, would you? Aye, my lord, Private Alwood said. Marcel grunted in pain as his net was lifted again. He was pushed overboard once more, flipped violently down. As he looked at the ocean, he noticed it was rapidly getting closer to him. When he crashed into the water, it felt as hard as concrete. The waves drifted over him. He couldn't help but take in a mouthful of salt water. Then he was lifted out. As he coughed the sea out of his lungs and struggled to breathe, he realized he was far above the water again. Private Alwood pulled the net back up to the level of the deck. A man reached over, grabbed the net near Marzell's face, and turned it toward him. The burning salt water cleared from Marzell's eyes, and that's when he found himself face to face with King Davin. I expected there to be more hatred in the eyes of a man who helped lead a rebellion against me, Davin said. I suppose two days of hanging over the side of this ship would take the spark out of even the strongest will, though. Now that you're all cleaned up, let's bring you inside. You could use some drinkable water and good food, I'm sure. Davin stepped aside as one of the guards pulled out a sword and cut open the net that entangled Marzell's numb body. The other men forced Marzell to his feet. 
After several tries that ended in him collapsing under his own weight, they carried him across the deck, following their king into a cabin. Inside, they dropped Marzell into a chair where he struggled to stay upright. Leave us, Davin said to his guards. They obeyed, shutting the door as they went. Davin poured water from a silver pitcher into a glass. He, then he walked up to Marzell and held the glass to his lips. Thank you, Marzell managed to say. Davin stepped back and gave him a look of pity. You and your friends didn't accomplish what I'm sure was your primary goal, killing me, but you sure caused a lot of destruction regardless. That show of magic in front of all those onlookers was really something. But you also damaged your own cause. When you knocked down the walls to my castle, you also crushed many people in the debris. Servants, gardeners, visitors on a tour of the grounds. Sure, I knew you were coming, and I could have kept that area clear, but why not help you fail? You knew, Marzell forced out. You knew because I told the woman? Not the wisest choice you could have made, my friend. But then she didn't tell me of her own free will. The seers could tell something was off with Mrs. Calvertson. They warned me, and I got it out of her. Seers? I have an army of them. Many in my palace, many more in the prisons run by my royal mystic committee, Davin said with pride. You didn't think I had them all killed, did you? Not when they could be of so much use to me, as proven by the thwarting of your attempted coup. And why, why didn't you kill me? King Davin laughed. Kill you? No, not yet. I believe you thought your god sent you on a mission, one in which you would be victorious. You thought running into Mrs. Calvertson that morning was a sign that it would go as planned. But I believe in the supernatural as well, Mr. Marzell. I believe that meeting was a sign that I will be victorious. You see... It told me that there really is something substantial going on here, that you believe the young Calvertson girl and Richard the Elusive will achieve something big in the North. I initially thought Sir Alamon could take care of it with that small army I gave him, but perhaps I needed to send more soldiers. And what good is a victory if I am not there to see it? I have a vested interest in the North. I need the foreign ones to retain their power there. If they fall to a rebellion, what kind of message would that send to the other former kingdoms of Epistel? I would have uprisings all over the place. You're in league with the foreign ones? The Sakabaya? They enslaved an entire country. How could you? How could I not? My father was king of what was once West Epistel, just one of seven kingdoms on this continent. I didn't want to be just one of seven. How ordinary that would have been. Everyone could see that King Harold of Emerson was cracking, and what better opportunity would I have? I boarded a ship with those loyal to me, and we sailed across the Western Sea for months. We made our way to a land we didn't have on our maps, the land of the Sakabaya. It was their temporary home, but it was no better than a wasteland. They were ecstatic at my offer, and once they made their way back across the sea to King Harold's castle and took control— it was only a matter of time before the other kings of Epistel realized we needed to join together under a single ruler to protect our freedom. You speak of freedom, Marzell said, yet you take our freedoms away, and the freedom of the people of Emerson, the freedom of religion, the freedom to use the powers given to us by the gods. Again, it's all about control. I have a team of practitioners who did away with Harold's sanity. 
Why do you think he went from being the most respected of the seven kings to being the one who cracked? Had I let him continue on as he was, he would have been the one the kingdoms turned to in the difficult times that were to come. I did what I had to do to get to where I am today. You will not be able to regain control. By now Richard the Elusive and Gemma Calvertson have surely inspired the people of the North to rebel against the Foreign Ones. The Lord Slenderon assured me of their victory. I wouldn't be so sure of that, Davin said. In fact, I think I will have some leverage over the girl, and then she can be used as leverage over Richard. What do you mean? Marzell asked. King Davin rose from his seat and motioned for the priest to follow him. Come, he said. He led Marzell across the cabin to an interior door, picking up a lantern on the way. He procured a key from his pocket, unlocked the door, and opened it. Marzell saw stairs that led deeper into the ship. He followed Davin down. At the bottom of the stairs was a small hallway and another door. Davin used another key to unlock this one. He pushed the door open and stepped aside for Marzell to see. Mrs. Calvertson, Marzell called out. The woman didn't appear to be in the decrepit condition Marzell was in, but she looked sad and confused. Sitting across the room was a man. He was not much older than Marzell, yet he looked quite unwell. Marzell turned to Davin. Why have you locked them up? What do they do to violate your laws? Mr. and Mrs. Calvertson were very concerned for their daughter, Davin said. They jumped at the chance to come see her and to talk some sense into her. They are not prisoners on my ship, as long as they do as they're asked and convince young Gemma to come home with them. Neither they nor Gemma will be imprisoned. Geoffrey Calvertson stood and looked at Marzell, but the priest couldn't decipher the look in his eyes. It was as if he didn't know he was on a ship, in the presence of a king and a terrorist. A crooked smile broke out on his face. Georgie boy, I don't remember you having such a silly stupid mustache on your face. Jeffrey said to Marzell. Serena Calvertson walked over and grabbed her husband by the shoulders, directing him back to the chair he'd been sitting in. Jeffrey's expression changed quickly to anger. He began to flail his arms and legs in a childlike manner. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be inside when the fight's out there. Did you see those trees burn? Did you? Jeffrey then jumped to his feet, turned, and kicked his chair against the wall. Davin quickly led Marzell back out of the room and closed the door while Serena did her best to calm down her husband. From behind the thick wood, Marzell could still hear the man yelling and banging things around. He hoped Serena would be okay. I expect that the sight of her parents will lead Gemma Calvertson back to her senses. But if not, there are four more ships trailing ours. Five hundred soldiers in total, not to mention the rowers we have on board to get our ships upriver and the rest of the crews plus the men Sir Alamon brought with him, around a hundred more soldiers. You see, Mr. Marzell, you have failed. Even if Richard and Gemma have managed to rally a few poor souls to their cause, they are doomed to fail. King Davin led Marzell farther down the hall and motioned toward a small, dark room. I know you have the power to melt this knob with your hands and get out of here, but you will not be able to fight your way off of this ship. I trust you'll behave because you know it's your only means of survival for now. I'll have a nice meal and some more water delivered to you shortly. Marzell stepped inside the room. He settled onto a chair and looked out the small porthole, the one source of light. King Davin shut and locked the door behind him. As Marzell sat and stared toward the west, he thought he caught sight of a glimpse of a far-off ship. 
It was too distant to be one of the four ships King Davin had said were accompanying them. Most sane people in his position wouldn't have found hope in such a sight, but Marzell was not like most others. He was a priest of the Lord Selenderon, the god who had led him this far. He was certain now that it was not all for nothing. The sighting of five military ships so far north of the mouth of the River of Giants wasn't just strange, it was unheard of in the days of King Davin's rule. The captain of this civilian ship wasn't sure if they had been spotted, but it didn't seem likely, as none of the naval vessels bothered to change course. But those weren't just any royal ships. They were capable of rowing. They wouldn't need such capabilities on the open seas, not unless they were planning on turning into a river and making their way against the flow or unless they were smugglers hoping to make their way into a guarded port under the cover of darkness, like this captain's own crew. These ships clearly weren't part of a smuggling job, and the only river in that direction they were headed was the Amasa River, the same river where two passengers had been dropped off just days earlier. I knew we'd stayed around here for a reason, the captain said, raising an overflowing tankard and chugging its contents. Actually, that wasn't the reason they had stayed around so long. The real reason was that they had spotted an old shipwreck on their way back to the south, a curiously black ship that had crashed onto a particularly rocky shore a few miles south of the mouth of the Amasa River. The decaying ship had turned out to have an entire hole full of weapons, including a number of massive cannons, which the captain had never seen before and had no name for. It didn't take long before Captain Linnell Nightstar and her crew figured out how to use those and they were perhaps the first people of Epistel who had ever done such a thing. Loading the weapons onto her ship had turned out to be an ordeal that took a few days. But that was all beside the point. A belch erupted from her as she turned toward her inebriated crew. Ladies, prepare to reverse course. We're heading back north. The crew of the ales and sails looked up from their cups and murmured in disbelief. The captain had already kept them circling in these waters for an extra couple of days with their newfound cargo, fishing and avoiding the naval patrols that would be near the shore once they headed south. Her crew was more than ready to get back to port. You heard me right, Captain Linnell called out. She didn't know why Justan the Just had been catapulted back into her life in the Roshish Tavern of Portsville, but deep down, she was a true believer in destiny. She'd been raised on the concept in the temple of her parents took her to as a child, the one she had pretended to forget as she grew up in a world that burned down houses of worship and the books they preached from. Everything happens for a reason, Captain Linnell thought, even running into that miserable lump, Justan. Justan paid us well to bring him and his friend to the north, she told her crew, so I imagine he'll pay us double if we save his skin. The ales and sails adjusted its course and began to make its way back north toward Justan the Just and his mismatched companion, George Calvertson. Captain Linnell had grown bored with her life on the seas. Perhaps her true destiny was calling. All right, that was chapters 35 and 36 of Gemma Calvertson and the Forest of Despair by me, Brian Hoyt. The final battle has begun. Gemma and her crew are dramatically outnumbered and outweaponed. These Sakabayan soldiers even have cannons. That's a first for the land of Epistel, where things like guns and cannons hadn't previously existed. I really wanted the situation to look dire as I set out to write the third act, 
So why not have devices that could so quickly obliterate the walls that Gemma and her companions relied on for their protection? Plus, it made some sense that the threatening beings from foreign lands would have some sort of different weapons and technology, so why not? I also really liked poking a little fun at Arnhem when he runs up to stand next to Richard on the wall and says his, you'll have to go through me to get to him bit, and then Sir Alamon pretends to not even recognize him. Finally, in that chapter, we also had the return of the Ogressi and the Witch of Farathon and her children. If the children are with her, though, does that mean that she did not keep her promise to free them? I guess we'll have to find out coming up. Now, this battle is just beginning, but it's getting a little bit more interesting. I often find myself getting kind of bored in the final act of movies where we get these big fight scenes that last way too long. So I was nervous going into the writing of this section of the book. It took me a few days of struggling to outline it before I realized that there were so many great little pieces throughout this whole story that could be brought in here. Little keys to unlocking the gates of what needed to be written. Things our characters have learned or experienced that would come back into play. And importantly, relationships formed throughout the book that would pay off here. This chapter was just the start of it, as our next chapter also shows us. After that, we have Marzell, the priest, coming back into the story. I wanted him to be as miserable and tortured as possible here. Yet, against all odds, he finds that he may still have strength from his faith, after all, at the very end. And finally, Captain Linnell Nightstar and the crew of the Ales and Sails are back in the story with an important new upgrade to their ship. Well, if you want to read ahead, you can buy the book everywhere books are sold online, including signed copies at ryanhoytauthor.com. You can also read it on Kindle Unlimited. Connect with me on social media, which you can find links to at ryanhoytauthor.com. The music in this podcast is from Before the World Moved On. Thank you for listening to the Machete and Quill podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Hoyt. We only have a few more chapters to go, and we'll continue our journey together through the forest of despair on the next episode. Take care until then. Thank you for listening.